Welcome to episode number 16 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Just to reiterate, this weird voiceover stuff that's happening at the beginning and end of some episodes is part of a rebranding of me changing the name from Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries to Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. So please disregard anything you hear in the podcast where we mention Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing fine. I'm not really on the road. Whatever. are on the road. They're... uh... They're camping. They're going to go camping in the woods with a bunch of my other family members for a week. I hope they don't encounter some UFO or something. Wait a second. Are they camp? So they're camping up in the uh, mountains of Vancouver (laughs) where Bigfoot has been known to be seen? Oh, I was I was just hoping it doesn't end up anything like the Allagash abductions. That would be that would be nice. No, no, that would be (laughs) terrifying. All right, so welcome everybody to the podcast. Uh, little differences here to point out. We have a Patreon now. Yay! <laughs> uh, I finally went in there and figured out how to make one. I got to admit, guys, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, I kind of learned as I went along. But we do have a Patreon now. It's patreon.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries. We already have three lovely backers um, and and they they get some lovely rewards. I'm not going to sit here and waste too much time talking about the rewards, but if you're curious about it and you feel like our content is worth something, you can go to patreon.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries and you can support us that way. And you do get some really good perks in there. Uh, the One of the higher tiers is you get an additional segment uh, that we're going to talk about. And there's some other things as well, like shout outs and you get the episode a day early, yada, yada, yada. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but here I am talking about it. Whatever. So you should go to Patreon.com. And again, as usual, you can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. All right. So getting right into it here. Um, this was one of our requests uh, from Facebook. Um, the, uh, we've been getting requested by for this for a while by this one person. So I was like, okay, let me look into this. And I actually had it. So really like this segment. It's called Blair Adams. Uh, that's actually a guy's name in this instance. I thought it might have been a, a female, but no, Blair is a guy. Um, As in Blair Witch. Yes, yes, but not it's affiliated the same in that. Way. Yeah, not affiliated at all with Blair Witch, but it's spelled the same way. So the story kicks off. Strangers found him half naked and battered on a gray July morning in 1996 at a motel parking lot in Tennessee. Spread across the road was German, American, and Canadian money that totaled $4,000. His driver's license identified him as Blair Adams, a 31-year-old man from Surrey, British Columbia in Western Canada. Police haven't been able to figure out a single reason why Blair's body was found in Tennessee. Now, already my appetite's getting wet for this segment. I'm like, okay, tell me, tell me more. Tell me more about why Blair wasn't supposed to be in Tennessee. The investigation isn't stalled for lack of evidence. As Blair traveled across the United States, he left an indelible mark on everyone that he came in contact with. Authorities have now been able to reconstruct his journey in exhausting detail, but nobody knows why he left home. No one knows why he ended up in Knoxville, Tennessee. And no one knows if he was running away from a murderer or running away from himself. Now, um, Blair worked construction, and he did his job well. He was also liked by everybody that the police investors came in contact with, and they, like, interviewed all these people, and, you know, they're like, there's no reason for anybody to not like this guy. He was, you know, he was kind of a ladies' man, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
But in the summer of 1996, Blair's cheery demeanor began to crack and buckle. His mood swings, they swung from agitated paranoia to pensive withdrawal. According to his mother, he wasn't sleeping well. And when asked what was wrong, he said, oh, well, I don't think I should tell you about it. And to this day, she says she doesn't doesn't know what it is. Now, already to me, I'm, you know, I know this is thrown around a lot, but one of the themes of Unsolved Mysteries, I'm instantly thinking schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah. You get am you got your amnesia people on here, and you got your schizophrenics, and then you got everyone else, you know, who's either murdered or abducted or you know the people who witness ghosts or whatever. Yeah, this this I don't know, man. This just sounds to me like schizophrenia. It, it, it does sound like that, but at the same time, it's just so bizarre with how it, it unravels, like how it you know the, it just yeah it, it kind of brings some credence to his paranoid yeah thoughts. exactly. Whatever the problem was, it came to a head on Friday, July 5th. He emptied his safety deposit box that contained gold and platinum. On Sunday, Blair made his first of several attempts to enter the United States. Upon trying to do this, Blair left an unmistakable impression on the U.S. Customs agent. You know, as an unmarried man carrying a lot of money, Blair kind of fit the profile of a drug trafficker. So they refused him entry. The next day, Blair showed up at his job, but not to work. Like, as soon as he showed up, he told the foreman, yeah, I quit, you know, can I get my check? And the guy's like, what, why? Later that afternoon, Blair bought a round-trip ticket to Frankfurt, Germany, from Vancouver, Canada. His flight would leave the following day, but just hours after buying the ticket, Blair was desperate again to get into the U.S. He I mean, showed. there's a lot of money that this guy spent. I mean, yeah. he emptied his safety, safe deposit box of more than $6,000 in cash. And thousands more in jewelry, gold, and platinum. And then he spent $1,600 on that airline ticket. Good God. I mean, I know travel across to Europe is expensive. I, I mean, I'm just looking at this money. I'm like, I could, use, <laughs> I could use that money to pay off my student loans. What the heck is this guy doing with all this stuff? Yeah, and, and, and for only being, you know... 31 years old this motherfucker had platinum and gold and it, like <laughs> yeah. i'm 28 and i don't see myself acquiring platinum and gold in the next three years so obviously this guy neither do i you know so. had he had some kind of uh you know business acumen to invest in you know gold and platinum to have that in his asset asset portfolio um so he shows up at his friend's house around 1 a.m the day before his flight or the night of the day of his flight, if you consider AM the next day, which technically it is. And he wanted his friend to take him to the US border. Now, it's weird, like reading take him to the border, because, you know, in the US, we automatically think Mexico. Think about Mexico, yeah. This is a much, uh, this is, this is a much less hostile border. Uh, the friend refused to take him because she was like a, like apparently a single mom, from what I gathered yeah. from the reenactment. And her kids were there, and it was like 1 AM, and she, was in a nightgown and it's like dude you're lucky if i even open the door for you at that time of night let alone drive exactly. you to the u.s border and blair said that someone was trying to kill him and he said yeah never mind and he like ran away and she was just like what, what so the fuck? what the fuck was that yeah so on tuesday blair went to the airport as scheduled but instead of getting on the plane he turned in his tickets rented a car and headed for the border why did you buy the ticket to Germany? 
<laughs> you know, again, like, you know, you say all that money, all that you can do with it. For me, I'm thinking, you know how bad I've been wanting to go to Germany my whole life? And he just buys a round trip ticket and doesn't go. Um, but this time he managed to slip past the border. Uh, Blair was in Seattle by 4 p.m. He left his car, a Nissan, at the airport and bought a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. The round-trip ticket to Washington, D.C., as the authorities explained, would have been half as much as the one-way ticket. But he still insisted on just buying one-way tickets. So you're starting to, I mean, if you hadn't already noticed, you know, this is just like a second or third red flag of unusual activity. Exactly. You know, usually people who are suicidal won't put a great deal of value on money or, or, or possessions. So you think the one-way ticket being more than a round-trip ticket, he didn't care. But then why would he get all his gold and silver out of the yeah, bank? Yeah, see, that's the, that's the thing with this case. It's like there's all these th extra things that just leave me scratching my head and just wondering why. Yeah. I mean, if he was schizophrenic or going through, going through some sort of mental breakdown, that he must have been somewhat cognizant. And other people seem to have noticed that he was not really acting out or anything. You know, he wasn't going around saying, you know, I mean, how, I mean, if you really were going through a breakdown, I don't think you could be able to go to a counter and actually buy tickets or do any of this stuff or drive a car. Right. So that's the thing. It's just, it's very, very bizarre, and it is a very, you know, interesting case in a lot of ways. And one of the main things is, is, is this behavior, this erratic behavior that he's that he is uh, doing here, and uh, it gets even more erratic later on. So after arriving in D.C. early Wednesday morning, now think about the map of the of Canada and the United States for a second. Just get it in your head: a map of Canada, and the United States. He drives to Washington, D.C. Wednesday morning. Then he rents a white Toyota and continues his peculiar odyssey. But now he's heading to Knoxville, Tennessee, 500 miles west. So why drive to Washington, D.C. to ultimately end up in Knoxville when Washington, D.C. is so much further east, 500 miles more east, than Tennessee. Bizarre thing like number 16 already. As, according to the cop, he had no business or no reason to be in Ennis, East Tennessee. He didn't know anybody. He had no business or no reason to be in the eastern United States whatsoever. Which, I mean, you know, it's like, buddy, back off, okay? Free country. In America, if I want to drive to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I don't have any friends or family, I will drive to Knoxville, Tennessee. Don't tell me I don't have business or a reason but this guy was doing it for a weird reason well maybe no reason who knows authorities yeah, don't tell me what i can and cannot do uh, hey don't tread on me buddy you're gonna piss <laughs> you don't want to piss me off you don't want to fuck with me i'm not someone you want to fuck with and i've already gone over my fuck counts for this episode because apparently <laughs> i'm supposed to watch my mouth now because the cur cursing hurts some people's feelings who listen to this uh, I'm fucking sorry, okay? Uh, authorities can only assume there was something wrong with his thought process. You know, well, duh. 
Blair was first seen in Knoxville around 5:30 that afternoon. Now this is this gets this is kind of a weird little setup here. Blair pulled up to a gas station and tried to get a maintenance man to help him with his car. Apparently it wasn't working. The maintenance man notices you're using the wrong key. He was still using the Nissan key and it wasn't fitting into the ignition. Yeah. Well, Blair's like, uh, no, this key's the right key. And he's like, no, this is a Nissan. You're driving a Toyota. And he goes, well, that's the one I've been using. And so I guess a maintenance man just scratching his head goes, uh, okay, whatever. So Blair was stranded in Knoxville till the next morning until a rental agency could get him a new key. A mechanic drove him to a motel, and again, he left a mark on the receptionist. Quote, he seemed very nervous, agitated, expecting someone to come in on him even though there was nobody there. End quote. Perhaps Blair was being followed. Perhaps he only thought so. The camera showed that in the space of an hour, he went in and out of, in and out of the lobby five times before yeah. actually getting a room. That's the one thing that really stood out to me. Is all the other behavior as yeah, strange, but the going in and out of, of the hotel lobby five different times, th- that that leads me to believe that, I mean, yes, he could have been going through some sort of uh, mental illness, but it's not necessarily schizophrenia. It could have been some kind of case of, you know, OCD, extreme OCD, um, you know, a gen- a generalized anxiety, could be schizophrenia. The whole and the whole murder thing though is blown. I know that's the thing. That's the up one in the that air. Really, that that's the one thing that's really up in the air. Like the bizarre behavior. It's like, yeah, I, I could see why someone might think he was suffering from some kind of mental illness. But and, then, and we don't know if anybody was in correspondence with this guy. Much like the Martin Luther yeah. King murder, um, you know, the, the the guy who actually shot Martin Luther King. Uh, is claiming that he had this guy Raul giving him order and direction the whole time of where to go and what to do. And if you look at the guy who the, Martin Luther King's the shooter, if you look at his travel the days before Martin Luther King was shot, this guy was all over the United States. He was yeah, zigzagging James left Earl, and right. James Earl Ray. Ger- yeah, That's James Earl Ray. Name. So you know, we don't know if there's some correspondence going on with Blair to where he's doing these things. There's just so many things we don't know. So exactly. when he finally decided to rent to room, he got the key and instead of just heading to his room, he marched straight out the front door and never came back. This was at 7:37 p.m. and was the last time Blair Adams was known to be alive because what he thought was going to happen to him ended up happening. 12 hours later, like the Cindy Cindy Williams case right. in some ways, you know. Twelve hours later, Blair Adams' body was found in a parking lot half a mile from his hotel. He was naked from the waist down. His pants were removed, but unlike the Cindy James case, his pants Cindy were... Cindy James, not Cindy... That's an actress. Uh, no, I said I said Cindy James. What do you think I said? I, I said Cindy... I said Cindy Williams. I fucked up. So. Oh, I thought I, I thought I heard you say Cindy James. No, I didn't. So. Oh, well. My bad. His pants were removed in a way that someone else would remove your pants. It's like in a pulling motion to where the pants were inside out. The socks were inside out, and the shirt was ripped open. The money was strewn about, um, same with the golden jewelry, but it was like in the fanny pack still. He had it all like in a fanny pack back when those were a thing in the 90s. Kids, they were a thing. Um, now, the key to the Toyota was magically there now next to his body it was 10 feet from his body 
yeah that one was another one that really like that was like a one that was just like wow <laughs> just like it just might as well be a neon sign just pointing down to like suspicious very <laughs> suspicious yeah very exactly uh, at first, the cops thought it was like a drug deal gone bad, but that didn't pan out. Robbery was thrown out because all the money is still there. Um, they tried, uh, this is quoting the authorities, they tried to find anything in his background to where he frequented with prostitutes, any homosexual experiences. They didn't find anything. Nothing added up. So, according to the autopsy, Blair had numerous cuts and abrasions. Uh, they felt that it was from fending off an attack. Uh, Blair finally died from a fatal wound that ruptured his stomach. Ouch! That is an unpleasant way to die, I would imagine. Yep. Uh, although Blair had been adamant that someone was after him, police believe it was imaginary. Blair's flight... Oh, bear, <laughs> bear's flight. Blair's, bear. <laughs> Blair's fight was from his own inner demons, but somehow at the end of the road, Blair ended up murdered, just as he feared. They show his poor mom at the end. She's like, you know, saying that. I don't know. She seemed she seemed very uh, medicated. I would say she did not seem. Yeah. She seemed like you know it had all gotten to her, and she was probably on some mm. kind of medication. She seemed very not present. Um, the police believe the attack occurred around three thirty a.m. If you have any information, contact the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the. United States, uh, I don't know, police, <laughs> something. We don't, we, don't have a, we don't have a fancy name for our police. <laughs> the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that is so fancy. And then I was just like, uh, the U.S. police? That's <laughs> oh, some real fancy talking I got going on here, I'll tell you what. Uh, I think someone said on our Facebook page, I think they said something like, "Be take it easy on Blair's mom. So now apparently I have this reputation of just being this like bulldog to like people that I think, <laughs> you know, whatever. I don't know why, like, dude, I just didn't like that one guy, okay? I didn't like Mike Morris. I'm not going to like make fun of like every anybody else on the show just, just because. Like that was the only time that happened because I don't know. I just had a personal vendetta against him for some reason. <laughs> no, the mom was fine. I felt bad for her. I mean, it sucked, you know? Poor, yeah, I mean, poor that's lady. a horrible thing. There's, she just has a lot of questions that are still unanswered to this day. As about, do I. You know what happened to her son. So nothing really fits. This isn't like the Devin Williams case where you could say, "Yeah, that's totally schizophrenia." Um, you can't really look at uh, you can't really look at it as like a Chuck Morgan case and say it's justifiable paranoia. He had people chasing after him. Uh, there's, there. It just doesn't fit any fancy. I mean, bubble. that's a possibility that people were following him, but I mean, that might be the sort. Maybe he was doing all this stuff to maybe try to tip somebody off or try to, you know, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. You know, help me. I can't say anything, but you hope maybe by my actions, maybe that will maybe get somebody's attention or something especially if you're walking in and out of a hotel like five different times but yeah um, again you know we don't know if he was in correspondence with anyone maybe he was doing exactly. all that weird shit as like like a, a red flag you know yeah. like call the cops i can't call them so i'm hoping someone else does type yeah deal. that's kind of what i was saying you know that's what i was that might have been a possibility 
Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's an interesting case. Obviously, we don't have any new information. Um, oh. we're, we, anytime we can, we try to get new information. And in this next case, uh, you, you know, you'll, I mean, some of you have already seen on the, on the uh, Facebook page, which you should go and like if you haven't yet, because I leak out more info on there and uh, even more info on the Patreon. In fact, I won't even tell you what you get when you donate, but it is very worth it. It's a certain name that most people know about on, on YouTube where you can gain access to a certain show. That's all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't have really anything else to say about this one. You know, it's mysterious. It's, it was a perfect Unsolved Mysteries segment. You know, yeah. just classic, you know. Uh, I hadn't good, really heard of it before, so great uh, request to whoever requested it. Um, do you remember... Who it was that requested? Um, man. Okay, okay. I figured it out. The same person who is a lovely Patreon contributor, uh, Morgan Gebhardt. She uh, requested Blair Adams. So, yeah. Uh, Thank you, Morgan. I'm gonna give you some info about this this young lady later on in the episode too. Um, so yeah, great great suggestion. So moving on to uh, segment number two. I will actually take the reins on this for once. I know. Wow, right? It's, it's shocking. <gasps> um, speaking of uh, Chuck Morgan or Charles Morgan, which we mentioned earlier, that segues directly into this case, which is the case of the mistake hit from the box set about Don Devereux and uh, these other this other man who uh, was uh, murdered, who would live somewhat close to Don and uh, there's a lot of evidence that points to that this man might have been murdered uh, by a mistaken you know hit uh, that was meant to be for Don. Uh, this case begins on May 14th 1990 in Phoenix, Arizona. Doug Johnston, a computer draftsman was found slumped in the front seat of his car. He had been shot once behind the left ear from a distance of at least 12 inches. Thirteen years earlier, the body of businessman Charles Morgan had been found shot once in the back of the head. Both cases are linked together by the fact that the authorities in both cases think that both men committed suicide. Don Devereux, who was interviewed on the previous case we discussed on the last episode of the podcast about the case of Chuck Morgan, Devereux believes that both killings were not by suicide, but by the result of a contract hit. In an ironic twist of events, Don Devereux himself has been warned that the bullet that killed Doug Johnston was meant for him. Mm. The case of Chuck Morgan remained mired in mystery until the broadcast on Unsolved Mysteries. More than 600 calls came into the telecenter. Don investigated every lead. What he learned was staggering. Don learned that Chuck was extensively involved in money laundering in Tucson, Arizona. He was doing large transactions in gold and platinum. He was doing well in excess of a billion dollars in money laundering. Most of it seems to be coming from Southeast Asia uh, with, with funds that were acquired at the end of the Vietnam War. Morgan made duplicates of all of his transactions because he believed this would save him, but they happened to be his death warrant. Three months after the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast and 13 years after Chuck Morgan's death, another mysterious death occurred right across the street from Don's home in Phoenix, Arizona. 
On May 14, 1990, at 11 p.m., Doug Johnston left for work as usual because he was assigned to the night shift at a local computer graphics company. An hour later, he was found dead in the company parking lot. He was shot in the back of the head, behind the left ear. At first glance, it appeared to be suicide, but oddly, Johnston was right-handed. There was no gun found on the scene or powder on his hands. The medical examiner concluded that it was just as likely that Doug was shot to death as it was that he committed suicide. Doug's wife, Denise, believes it is unbelievable that Doug would have committed suicide. He had just graduated with honors in the computer drafting, and he had just got the job at a local company fairly recently. Things were looking up, not down. Devereaux continued his personal investigation, and he determined that because he lived right across the street where Doug Johnson was killed, and his car was also an aging Toyota station wagon, just like Doug, just like Doug's, he decided he was going to you know, tell this information to the Phoenix Police Department. And the police department didn't think it was a lead worth digging into. Which, like... <laughs> I mean, come on. I, I know, yeah. You know, like the shit that the the shit that police will will the lengths that they'll go to sometimes for some cases for some people, but with other people they just brush them off like, oh yeah, that's cute kid. Go you know go sit you know go sit on the sidelines. Especially for, you know from coming from somebody like Don. I mean, he's a reporter. He's a very reliable source. A very very reliable person. You know, but nope. About a year later, Don was sent a letter from journalist Danny Casolaro. Oh, concerning where Charles have we heard Mendes that name from? Legal gold transactions. But before Devereaux could mail his research, Danny was dead. Danny's death was also viewed a suicide. Danny's brother was a doctor. He said that Danny was so squeamish with the sight of blood that it made him sick. So due to this fear, Don believes that slashing his wrists was a highly unlikely form of suicide. He also believes Danny was killed by the result of a professional hit, just like Charles Morgan and Doug Johnston. So let's connect the triangle here for a second. So we have probably we got Chuck Morgan at the top of the triangle because he's the one actually doing illegal illicit activities for as we've as they established in this segment. Um, not only the mafia, but as Don Devereaux put, a lot of people seem to have been involved, including renegade folks from the U.S. intelligence communities, like the CIA, who were doing things under, under the cover of the agency, but probably most likely to line their own pockets. Also, some indication that the Vietnamese government officials who were going into exile were involved, and also the Department of Defense. Exactly. <laughs> Again, renegade rather than official capacity. So they were basically masquerading as like, yeah, this is, you know, government stuff. But really, they were just, you know, they were it's probably the octopus. <laughs> right. Well, no, it was. And so we got Chuck Morgan doing escrows for, you know, mob families and knew too much. So he's making these duplicate copies of all the all the uh, records thinking that was going to help him, which, uh, like you said, it became his death warrant because they're like, hey, he's got copies. Let's kill him, you know. Um, so, so Chuck Morgan's at the top of this triangle. And so, I don't know, just, I'll just pick a side. To the left of that triangle, towards the bottom, we have Danny Castellaro, who we already talked about. He was investigating 
the octopus, which basically involved every major scandal of the 1980s um, wrapped up into this octopus network. Um, he was getting information from all kinds of seedy characters. One of the characters that wasn't seedy that he was getting information from was the complete to our triangle, Don Devereaux, who is him in him his own right a, uh, a a good journalist and in that community. And he did a lot. He was a not only was he a key interview on the Chuck Morgan segment, but he was also a pretty big part of the Danny Casalero story as well. So. These are, you know, and like I said before, these are all kind of linked together. And now, now since we're covering Don Devereaux, it's it's complete. So Chuck Morgan's doing a lot of illicit activity. Danny Castler wants information about it. Charles Morgan gets snuffed out. Danny gets snuffed out. And now, you know, the whole time Don Devereaux has been covering both of these people, and I guess was maybe on, on an acquaintance level relationship with Danny Castellaro. So I think that's interesting. That it uh, is. It, 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 they're they're puzzle pieces that all fit together. They all fit into place. It, it drives me crazy that they didn't include the Ch- Chuck Morgan case on the uh, yeah, murder murder set. I don't set. know why that is not on there. That is a very very. Good I guess segment. I guess now that I think about it, I guess because when you when we did the Chuck Morgan one, there was a lot of unanswered questions. But I think but they have the Don Defer. Right when they went and did the Don Devereaux one, I think I think it kind of answered a lot of those questions. It tied, I mean, obviously it didn't answer the and two. Another, yeah, and another thing with the Don Devereaux one on the box set, it recounts the Chuck Morgan case. Right, so, so maybe that's like, why they thought it didn't need to be on there because, like, oh well, we kind of brushed over that in the Don Devereaux segment. But you get so much more juice, like just so much more details about who yeah. Chuck Morgan was as a person, and it's I don't know. I, I thought it was a very enjoyable segment in its own yeah. right. I did too. And so I mean, about, you, yeah. you get to hear details about the $2 bill in the underwear. You get to hear details yeah. about, you know, the map that was, you know, the, the. I didn't even mention the $2 bill or right. anything like that. Or the phone call, you know. Yeah, from Green Eyes, which was me. Because <laughs> I have green eyes. All right. Probably shouldn't be admitting that. Okay. So about. <laughs> yeah, Mike's just like, okay. All right. Moving on. <laughs> so uh, about six months after Danny's death. Don received a distressing phone call from another journalist who said that he had a warning from a highly placed source and the CIA. Here are the chilling words from the reenactment. (sighs) Oh, yes. Wasn't it nice when we lived in a simpler time before cease and desist letters and DMCAs where I could play you the clip of uh, Don Devereaux and the Unsolved Mysteries show and him saying, you know, what was going on, but... You know, we live in the real world, folks, and unfortunately, I had to take down that clip from the original episode, but rest assured, you will hear everything that Don Devereaux had to say in episode 19, where I actually interview him, and that is coming up soon, so look forward to that, but in this part, he's basically talking about how he had uh, sources from Israeli intelligence and other um, sources that said that uh, he was kind of in jeopardy and he needed to watch himself and watch his back because he was getting into stuff that he had no business uh, getting into and they were giving him a warning. Israeli intelligence? Like, how many people are involved in this thing? Exactly, (laughs) just keep going deeper and deeper. Like, should we even be talking about this right now? (laughs) (laughs) He said, yeah, and and, and so then they got Dawn on here. And um, 
you know, it's becoming more and more obvious that Doug Johnson, that poor bastard, it was an innocent hit, you know, was an innocent victim yeah. of a hit that was meant for Don. And, and as as the as the segment says, I kind of paraphrase the paraphrase this: Has Don Devereux been targeted for murder because of his investigation into the Charles Morgan case? If so, then it, is it possible that Doug Johnston may have been an innocent victim of a contract hit meant for Don Devereux? Right, and then, then it is possible that Don jo- Doug Johnston may have been an innocent victim. And then you got Don Devereaux who's saying his parking lot is across the street from my parking my lot. My parking lot. There's one digit difference in our numbers. I've gotten mail frequently from the building across the street. He was driving a car much like mine. Someone was waiting for him in the dark. This was not some random shooting. It had all the characteristics of a professional hit. Single single caliber to the back of the head. He's a professional job. Yeah, um, this, is, this is yeah, this is what he was saying. So somebody was evidently waiting for him in the dark. Must have known about where he would be pulling into the parking lot. And this was not some random shooting. This was a shooting that had all the of the characteristics of a very professional killing. This was a single shot, twenty five caliber, back of the left ear, very slick murder. It actually doesn't sound like a bad way to be taken out, if I'm being honest. Eh, yeah, I mean. It's better than what happened to the whistleblower guy if he was awake oh, when that God. happened. That's for sure. Or the uh, Friends Till the End segment, which I don't know if you've seen about the two boys oh, who, I were, have. Yeah, yeah. who were run over by the train. That was a that was a good segment. Well, not good for the family, but... What the hell? <laughs> I mean, I, it, was a, it was a classic unsolved segment, I guess you could say. Not good. I'm like, it was a good segment. Look, people, I don't hate Southerners that much, okay? These people were from the South, but, I, you know, this has all gotten way out of proportion. I feel like it's out of my hands now. I'm kind of freaking out. Uh, no, I'm in the, good as in, you know, if you're into unsolved mysteries, it was a... It was a oh, we, I know. Everyone I know. knows. I'm just, I'm just messing around. I know. I Don think... can't say with absolute fact what exactly happened to Don. Exactly happened to... Uh, I wrote it wrong. Doug. Yeah, I do that shit too. Don't worry. But he does strongly believe that it was not suicide based on the evidence he has looked at and heard. And he finds that the odds that it was suicide are virtually non-existent. He also feels that if Johnson was killed with a bullet meant for him, he feels very terrible about this. And he feels awful for Doug's family. Doug's that, wife also believes Don's theory of what happened. Yeah, and then, then Don says, I suspect that the same network of people, mob people and CIA people, were involved in the 1970s activities with gold bullion. Uh, they're probably still out there. I'm not thrilled to think there's a high-level CIA official who knows about this and is not correcting this. And clearly, if people in the U.S. government who know and disapprove of this sort of thing... then they should damn well get off their butts and do something about it. Yeah, I love that. It's like they should damn well get off their butts. It's just how he said it. There was like an elegance. There, there was an old school kind of like journalistic. You he know, knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's very seasoned. Mm-hmm. He, he's a veteran. You, you really take. Uh, you take a lot of. I'm trying to think of the right word, but when he says things, you definitely pay attention. And you believe him. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, you already said it at the beginning of the segment, but the segment ends with um, after he says that it does a freeze frame of Don, and then Robert Stack comes in like a like the sick twisted uh, host that he is, yeah. go, going exactly. Don Devereaux has taped recordings from yeah, a number exactly. of credible sources that he is the, the next target. That he is the next target. It's like yeah. it's like Stack Stack comes in for the win, you know, like yeah. bam. <laughs> and that's like how it ends. It's just like Don also has several tape recordings from credible sources. That have warned him that he is the next target. So you know what, people? I didn't feel good enough about that. I, I, I'm watching this and I'm going, th- you know, I'm checking the Unsolved Wikia, which if you don't know, it's a, it's like a source, kind of like Wikipedia, but it's got all the Unsolved Mysteries on there, like written out, and you can read the details. You don't actually see any video, you know, so don't get your hopes up. I already told you how you can see the video if you're reading between the lines earlier in this segment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I was like, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna go a step further for you people. So you know what I did? I googled Don Devereaux's name. His website came up. It was him. I had a picture of him. Uh, it's just kind of like his uh, like a blog spot where he can post his art, his news articles and his journal journalist articles and stuff. Because he's done a lot of other work and you know I'm d- doing research into this guy, man. He's he uh, he's produced some TV kind of stuff, some investigative t- kind of stuff. He's uh, He's just been—he's been doing uh, journalism for a really long time. He's got a lot of accolades, you know. This guy's got got some gravity to his name, it, it would seem. Um, maybe not as much as like you know, you're more like your Walter Cronkites or anyone like that, but you know, nonetheless, um, he's still a name in the industry. So, I actually found in his blog that he had an address uh, to a PO box. So I sat down and I wrote him a letter, um, and I basically said, "Hey, you know, we're." Uh, a growing show about unsolved mysteries, not affiliated with Cosgrove or Moyer or anything like that. You know, we're just two guys who are passionate about the show and we've developed a bit of a following and we would love to hear how this segment ends to refresh your memory. It ends with, and then I, you know, gave the quote, you know, taped recordings from a number of credible sources that he's next. I mean, he's still alive. And I'm, I told him in the letter, I was like, I'm glad to see you're still alive and well, we would love to hear what your life's been like since this segment. So, uh, I sent that letter out, uh, yesterday so we'll see. We'll see if Don writes us back and I can give you guys an update on this. Uh, I want to try to do this more in the future as much as possible. If we can make any kind of difference as far as like really getting, uh, really living up to the namesake of our show, uh, truly uncovering these unsolved mysteries, I would like to do that. So any any chance I can, I'm going to try to reach out to these people and see if they'll talk to me. I mean, Don's older. He, maybe he doesn't have as much on his plate anymore. He might bloody well respond, and that would be great if he did. I would love to be able to share that with you guys. You know what happened? Did 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 he have to like become go into witness protection or something? You know, I don't know. But you know, nothing's too good for my 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 children of the podcast. <laughs> well, I, I definitely appreciate Josh's hard work here, uh, going above and beyond there. Uh, I hope. I also hope that uh, Don writes back and and. Uh, I thought it was be funny. Very interesting to hear from him. I thought it was funny. The only way you could reach him was through uh, snail mail. Like he had no email that you could reach him. I mean, I'm sure he's got well, an email. Maybe there's a. Re- well, yeah, true. Maybe there's a maybe good. There's a reason. There's a good reason for that, probably. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that actually until you. Yeah, that's probably why. Now that I think about it. So yeah, that's a great case. Um, 
Obviously, it was a mistaken hit. Uh, Doug Johnson did not commit suicide. Uh, I can no. say that definitively. Um, there's no reason why he would have. Uh, it's. I n- mean, even even the I didn't mention this, but even the actual precinct, you know, the Phoenix PD, they're like, we we this case is open as a homicide. You know, it's basically as a homicide. So even there they even they're more likely yeah it's more like a homicide than it is a suicide but they did say that it could be a suicide but it could also be a homicide so that's why it's still open as a murder case yeah all right so our final for the normal podcast our final segment of the show (laughs) you like that uh is the hudson valley ufo case um this is what I've, you know, obviously we're going to cover every single UFO case that I can get my hands on because those are my absolute favorite segments from Unsolved Mysteries um, with Strange Legends or, you know, unex- the unexplained being in second place and bizarre murders and fraud being down there. But That's UFO- why I'm shocked you haven't watched sightings yet. I'm getting to it, darn it. I still have, I, I ju- <laughs> from the suggestion of a fan on our uh, po- uh, Facebook page, I went out and bought In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, and so I've been working on those in my spare time. Pretty good, but pretty dated. Still fascinating, nonetheless. It's got Spock, I mean. Spock is posted. <laughs> do it for Nimoy! <laughs> 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 Gotta do it for Nimoy. Angry video game nerd quote there. Um... So, New York's Hudson River Valley is 40 miles north of Manhattan. The valley is home to upscale professionals and retirees. People there tend to be well-educated and cosmopolitan. Hardly the people you'd expect to get caught up in a UFO fever. But that's exactly what happened from 1983 until 1989. Now, as we know, the 80s and 90s were ripe for this UFOs. It says 86 on their website. Oh, no. it could be 89. I think they said on the segment 89. I don't know. It doesn't matter, really, the duration. Well, no, no, it is 89, because then it goes on to say the the epidemic lasted six years. Um, Yeah, so uh, Unsolved Mysteries, their official website, they need to fix their typo then. Yeah. Uh, It lasted (laughs) six years, and ultimately the episode was dismissed as a hoax perpetuated by a group of stunt pilots. But today, the eyewitnesses maintain that what they saw could not have been a handful of airplanes. So let's dig into this fucking cookie pie thing. You know what? What in the world am I smoking? You cannot dig into a cookie. It's like I try to be like smooth and, and hostly, and it just backfires on me every time. Let's um, dig into this ice cream sundae. There you go. Box of crispy UFOs. <laughs> Or for you in Canada, a box of Tim Hortons. Um, so Dennis Zant, a husband and father of five, worked for the government for 17 years. He was the highest ranked official in Putnam County. Zant's home is in Brewster, and it was the scene of a stunning account. Stunning in fucking deed, Robert Sack. Quote, it was a very large object. The structure was very dark gray metallic, almost girder-like, like girders on a bridge or something. Uh, this thing is big and bright, the thing that they show. Now, you, you got... The reenactment, this is one of the best reenactments I, I agree. think I've ever seen. I agree. When it comes to this show, when it comes to showing the UFO. So I don't know if they used a model or not, or whatever they did, but it just looked better than some of the other CGI spaceships that they've had on the show before. Um, oh, it was definitely CG. I mean, I, I, I it was definitely CG, but it, it's still it's it's like 
maybe they've spent a little bit more money on the CG here or something. I... Or they had like lights in the sky or something. Or it was a combination of CG and maybe a model or something. Well, just to paint a picture for like what you guys are supposed to be seeing in your mind, picture like, you know, your suburban house on, the, you know, like just a road of houses and it's a big house, you know, like these people have money, obviously. And in their front yard, the dad and son, you know, there's just this giant spotlight on the ground, almost like it's a helicopter above them. But they look up and all you see in the entire sky pretty much is like a small city basically it's like got all these lights uh randomly placed it's got almost kind of like girders and support beams and stuff running what he said you know he says it looks like a city of lights yeah hung in the sky all brilliant colors yeah and so they're just you know and and everyone who's all the eyewitnesses who legitimately saw this and not the stun airplanes they all talk about how this thing was just enormous and how it was quiet it made no sound whatsoever which if you think about and in as far as physics go for our world for planet earth the bigger something is the more louder it kind of has to be to stay up in the air exactly I mean, if a 747 is flying that close to your house, you're going to hear it. It's not going to be silent. Right. I mean, it's just simple, you know, laws even, of physics. Even a stealth bomber, which is kind of what the shape of this thing kind of reminds me of, is a little bit of something like that. No, this ain't the shape of it. This is, this... Not the stealth bomber. I meant the other bomber. There's a different bomber. The, the one before the stealth bomber, the one that has a similar sort of shape. This thing reminds me of a big-ass blimp if you painted the blimp black and put a bunch it's of like lights on it. It looks like a wing to me, like like a, a curved wing. Well, either way, it, it's fucking big. Like a, and it, it looks like one of those like things you fly, like a boomerang, like a boomerang. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, now I see that, yeah. Okay, now I know what you're talking about because I was just thinking about the first scene where they don't show the whole thing and I was like how is he getting that but then I remember they actually do show the whole thing later on yeah Yeah. it does look like that it's like a big kind of boomerang shape but in this first scene they're just showing the bottom the lights and it's just like the objects seemed to be very silent lights were iridescent they're bright they stood out in the sky it looked like a city of light at the time the girls became frightened because he had girls as well and they ran into the house and then oh, i'm quoting this guy by the way then my son and i were just drawn underneath it they felt very good about encountering a visual contact with the object we followed the object around the backyard and it and then at that point a feeling of fright came upon me thoughts started to flood my mind thoughts of the craft touching ground thoughts of encountering an alien being thoughts of abduction seemed like seconds before the object started to move again but the feelings were overwhelming from the beginning to the end of the 19 or 20 minutes I viewed the aircraft, it was also a time of self-reflection of myself and who I was as a person, which I thought that was kind of a bizarre yeah, statement. Yeah, that was a bizarre statement. <laughs> That's some new age bullshit. Yeah, like, it was a time of self-examination of who I was and what my sexual preferences were and, uh... What? Wait, what? No, he didn't. <laughs> uh, well, Did he have some different girls with him than the ones that he was? Well, it was so, uh, it was, it was so weird because, you know... You know, his girls. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they never really... He's just said my girls. He didn't... But then they were five years old, and it just got creepy. 
Okay, let's wash that thought out of our head here with a little bit of Listerine for the mind. I guess what was so weird is the fact that here this guy is, highest ranked official in Putnam County, and he encounters this thing that makes him go so far out of character to say it was a time of self-reflection and who, yeah. of myself and who I was. So I mean, maybe as himself, as a you know, as a human on Earth, you know, and I could see that, you know, because you you just think this is just the, the stuff I see in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's it's movie stuff. This is fantasy. And then when you see it for yourself, then you are then you're then you do have this moment of self-reflection. But I, usually that would come later for me because I'd be too scared to really think about, hmm, what's my place on, on the universe now that I've seen a UFO? No, I'd be like, holy fucking shit, <laughs> I just saw a UFO. This giant thing is right here. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I think that, like, time of self-reflection, like, I mean... Later, sure for me, but at the moment, the very moment, I'm just I'm just gonna be scared at the same time, kind of excited because, you know, it's almost like the ghost episode. Um, not the it's not the Tallman one, but it's the one where the elderly couple and the ghost is like ringing the bell and like the yeah, the, that one. yeah like the the husband and they're like this old couple who live together. The husband, as he's describing this, his voice starts getting weak and quivering. And he's like, I-, I just never seen anything like this before. And it, I think that was a hoax. I don't think that was a ghost. That particular segment, the one that, you know, was ringing the bell and all of that. Oh, like, I think it was some kind of energy. I mean, it, it could be, but I don't know. That it, one kind of made me kind of think it was just people a little bit older. You know, people older people just kind of wishful thinking. Uh, I don't think really they wanted that lot. to happen. I it was yeah, it, it was yeah. fucking with his head because he. Well, my point that I'm trying to make and that's tying into this guy who saw a UFO is whenever your picture of reality is completely shifted, it's disturbing. Shattered. It is disturbing, and it would be for me, but that's I just wouldn't have that moment of self reflection just then. And then. Right, it wouldn't happen just then. But I mean, if you're if you staunchly you know if you're very close-minded and you staunchly look at life Don't like believe it, that kind of, in right that kind of stuff at all then i could yeah and then it I gets thrown in your face it's like whoa i got a lot of shit that i gotta reconsider you know like exactly we are not alone so dennis sant and his family were not the only ones mem- mesmerized by the sighting miles away and this is dude this is crazy like think about this actually happening miles away traffic came to a halt on a bridge as people got out of their cars to view this object in the sky now i've seen people get into like stop traffic because of an accident i've seen people stop traffic because the weather in florida is so severe people just lose their brains and forget how to drive so they you know almost come to a stop but to for people to be driving on the highway and they have places to be and to feel as though this thing in the sky is so important and extraordinary that they pull off to the side of the road and get out to look at it, mass, you know, en mass, that is, that is substantial. That's, that's pretty stunning. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you'd see in, like, War of the Worlds or Independence Day. Right. You know. And, and this was happening in the 90s, and we weren't hearing the, anything about it anywhere else in the U.S. Or in the 80s. But yeah. Right, 80s. Well, and 90s, but yeah, this particular wasn't one was from the 80s. 
this was happening in the 80s and yeah we didn't hear much about it and it was kind of just swept under the rug but apparently you know this happened a lot of people saw this that's what makes this one so credible to me is that there's so many people who see it so many blue collar you know new yorkers you know new yorkers and i try to do a new york accent but I failed i can't do it that's okay uh, <laughs> i still love you Mike. <laughs> well new york uh, so uh, it was like a fucking UFO in the sky. It was like freaky, man. It looks like a fucking slice, a slice from Geno's. Like, it looks like a fucking slice from Geno's. Yo, man. it had like pepperoni-shaped lights and uh, I don't know, like spaghetti-shaped <laughs> wings. It was fucking nuts. Remind me of this girl I banged last week, Stacy. Hey, how's your sister doing anyway? She's a good girl. I don't know what I'm doing right now, folks. I am so sorry. You're trying um, to do Rocky? It kind of sounds like Rocky a little bit, you know. Hey, yo, Adrian. <laughs> you see that UFO? <laughs> yo, I'm going to go punch it with my gloves. I'm going to go punch it. I'm going to go punch that, that uh, UFO up in the sky, Adrian. I'm going to go punch that and then, you know. For you. you know, save the world for you. Ah, uh, Rocky, you're all washed up now. You ain't going to punch nothing. <laughs> hey, come on, Mick. Rocky's been washed up in every single one of his uh, in every single one of his movies, and he always has to prove himself at the end. It seems like I don't think there's a move a Rocky movie where he doesn't start out as being washed up. Well, Rocky three doesn't start out like that. Well, he's on top of his game in Rocky three. Yeah, he's like winning matches and I had the tiger and all of that. Uh, ah, that's when that song first premiered, by the way. Rocky four doesn't really. I don't think Rocky four starts. Well, not no. Not really. Rocky Five, yeah. Rocky Balboa. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, that whole Rocky conversation, all that New York shit we just did—that was that was weeding out the uh, the non-fans of the podcast from the fans of the podcast because we want because uh, we get so many complaints about uh, cut the chit chat and get to the stories, but then you know we got people who like the chit chat, so we're just pouring fuel on the well, fire of the people who hate the chit chat. Were you going to say something, Mike? I said you're welcome. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were saying well, but you're anyway. I'm, I don't understand your very thick New York accent there, sir. Meanwhile, when all this was happening, Officer Andy Sadoff, a 10-year vet, was working routine traffic patrol March 24th. They had her set up radar to catch speed, like speeding cars, douchebags. God, I hate those <laughs> cops that just sit there and set up radar and they hide so you can't even see them. Bunch and... of fucking jerk offs. You jerk off. $180. How am I going to pay my gym membership? Buy my creatine. From east to west, she's saying uh, it was a series of lights. Uh, she thought it was, a, it's a female, by the way, a name like Andy. It's an, a sexually ambiguous name. Like Andy McDowell? Sure. Uh, she thought it was a plane, <laughs> but it was really quite large. Mostly white lights, but green as well. It approached her vehicle and then stopped and hovered. No sound. And she's like harping on this. So like this really freaked her out, as it would me. I mean, you see something this big in the sky, it's not making noise. That scares me. What's it about to do? She looked at this thing thinking, what is it? When she put her head out the window to look at it, uh, again, she's saying there was no noise, no humming, no engine, absolutely silent. Just seconds later, um, eerie silence was broken when someone phoned in on the radio saying how they were reporting this. And then she gets on the uh, radio and she's saying, like, I saw it too, I'm about to follow it. And I must say, uh, the actress that uh, portrayed this female cop, uh, she did a good job in that, that little... Yeah, she did. You know, she was very... She was. She came off as very um, excited in a authentic way, I thought. Yeah. 
Um, as it's she, nice to look at too. Not yeah, not too bad. Um, kind of the olive skin, Mediterranean complexion, like myself of Italian heritage, maybe. Um, she as she followed the car uh, or the vehicle or. God damn it. As she followed the UFO in her car, she said it moved very slowly, and she followed it until it floated off into hills. She was excited to figure out what it was, and she wasn't frightened of it. Um, uh, it was truly a flying city, computer engineer Ed Burns uh, relayed, because he's the next guy that they interview. Uh, Ed Burns is a retired senior manager for IBM, so it's like they got some weight, you know. He's a computer engineer. Right. You can't so, yeah. you can't be a retired senior manager for IBM and be like, oh, you know, have a tinfoil hat on going like, aliens. Um <laughs> So Ed Burns was driving home on the Taconic Parkway 10 miles from Officer Sadoff's location when out of nowhere he got a lot of static on his radio. He looked up and then he saw the craft. He said it was a triangular chevron shape. On the back, it had to be as large as a a football field. And there was no noise. And how he said it was creepy, he goes, I I don't think I can recreate it. He's like, and there was no noise. No noise. Yeah. It's very matter of fact. Um... He was saying it seemed so close to the ground, like he could have thrown a rock at it. Ed pulled off the highway with a group of motorists who also had already pulled off the highway. He said, this one fellow I was standing next to never talked to me once. He was just staring at this thing. His eyes were huge. I was so excited I wanted to share what I was feeling with somebody, but what I had witnessed that night, it was not of this planet. The object was moving, uh, slowly moving north over the Hudson River Valley, according to eyewitness reports. In Yorktown, the phone started ringing off the hook with people reporting the object. It got to the point to where the Taconic Parkway was stopped with people outside of the cars observing the object, as I mentioned earlier. Officer Kevin Soravilla reported that he had also seen the object. He said it was about 300 to 400 yards wide. Good God. Object began to appear from the northern horizon. Officers Wolf and Soravilla... Jeez, I'm talking about all this north stuff. My little northern accent's kind of kicking in here. Uh, Officers Wolf and Soravilla were standing side by side, looking up at the same sky, but their accounts were totally different. Officer Soravilla was convinced that what he saw was one solid object with a bunch of lights. Some of them said you could hear a drone and that you could see the sky in between the lights, however. So these two cops are standing next to each other. One saying that I can see the sky in between these lights and that he thought it was a, a fleet or you know, a flight formation of aircrafts. And then the other guy saying, no, it's a solid object, yeah. you know. Officer Wolf, this is, he had a completely different impression. He said, they look like airplanes to me. I said, Kev, I live near an airport and I see these airplanes every day. So as they were coming over, he said, well, you can't hear anything. And I said, listen. And then we started to hear a drone. It wasn't one big solid unit, but if you looked at it for like a couple minutes or even a fraction as it was coming over, I could see where some people would have gotten upset. Hey. (laughs) Suddenly, the Hudson Valley sightings took a dramatic turn. The UFOs were a hoax. Nothing more than small aircrafts flying in tight formation. Upwards of seven to ten air, yeah, fucking. Upwards of seven to ten aircraft that do fly in formation. Uh, Anthony Capaldi has been an air traffic controller for ten years. When he first observed the formation, it looked peculiar. From his vantage point, uh, it did look like one solid formation, but he could see it was the V six aircraft flying in formation. He felt uh, that nobody could misdiagnose this as anything else. This guy. Uh, I know it is. <laughs> Who, Anthony Capaldi? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, some of, some of the skeptics here, it is kind of. I I I think they just want to. They'll they'll do anything to just disprove the fact that it could not be, that it could be something out of this world. They just want to be. Oh no, it's just an airplane. And you can clearly see this. I'm more experienced than you are when it comes to this. What about all these other people who saw this thing and was literally right in front, right in front of their face? <laughs> well, you you, you want to know about those? You want me to tell you about those skeptics, Mike? Go ahead, ahead. Do you, yeah. Do you guys? Do you, say? Do you guys what do you gotta, know what's what coming? Do you have to say about the, the skeptics, Josh. Do you, Do you guys out there know what's coming? Do you Do you feel like you have an idea? Well, let me just give you a little hint. It starts and ends with this. <laughs> that's how I feel about the skeptics. <laughs> so stupid. God, that's such a stupid gimmick. I If we ever get to do like a convention, like a mystery con or something, I hope everybody <laughs> shows up with those little things and like we all blow them together and the skeptics will be... That, that we, we would have definitely made it if that's the case. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is he says, the first time I observed the formation, it looked a little peculiar. And from our vantage point in the tower, they just appeared to be just one big light because they were flying in tight formation. I don't think if this formation flew over an individual's head at a thousand feet, there's any way you can mistake it for anything but the formation of flying due to the sound of the aircraft engines. Imagine that if a thousand feet, you could really determine that it's an aircraft. He's just like completely ignoring the fact that most of these people who saw this said it made no sound. It was completely silent. Yeah, uh, you know... It's kind of like what you said, you know, people up north are kind of more no-nonsense about things. Uh, I, there's a reason why uh, the stereotype of the abductee is some hick from, you know, oh, yeah, they abducted me and poked out my eyeball and blah, blah, blah. There's a reason, you know. They put this thing up my behind and they probed my, probed my asshole. And I can tell you right now, I did not like it. Okay, just for the record, I am not a homosexual, as they call them, the liberal news media. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, we just lost five, a few uh, listeners. Uh, Philip Embrullo, uh is kind of one of those double L's Spanish thing, Embrullo, Brulio. The UFO, uh, he's, he's a uh, UFO um, like researcher. He says the UFO was seen before the hoaxers started their night flights. And after these hoaxers began their night flights, people would call up who saw the UFO on the previous dates and say, yeah, I saw something in the sky, but it wasn't the same thing I saw before these planes. So you had people who saw both and could distinguish the difference between the two. Home home video taken uh, by somebody. It shows the UFO. Bob Pazuli. Oh, Bob Pazuli. That's right. I had his name in here. I don't know why I didn't have it up in the uh, first part here. Um, the night the airplanes were seen, dozens of witnesses said they saw the aircraft. Then they saw another video by the same guy that show um, the military aircraft. You can hear the engines. Uh, you can see the lights are shifting positions in relation to each other. thing that's kind of fucked up on my notes here. What I meant to say was Bob Pazuli Pizzu- took this video uh, of the UFO, of, of what is generally believed to be the UFO. It's standing still, the lights aren't moving, you cannot see the stars, you know, in between the ship. There's another guy, though, I think, that goes on and tries to discredit that video, if I remember correctly, right? Isn't he, that's not the one where you can clearly see the lights here, 
in a pattern or something. No, no, because because he had two separate oh, that, videos. That's he, the other video. Okay. Yeah, right. The second got video. A little bit mixed up because it was showing the same video. Right. You know. So it's cool because this Bob Pazuli guy has one of the UFO and then he has one where he goes, you know, I can, I, you can see the lights moving, you know, separately and you can see the stars in between, blah, blah, blah. So there, you know, he had two videos to compare to. Um, Ed Burns, uh, back to one of the star eyewitnesses here, he says, uh, I tell the story to uh, certain friends that I will, that, uh, will believe me. I think my wife believes me because she loves and respects me. My children love and respect me, but they read the papers. You know, they they uh, they're skeptical. But boy, I tell you, I will never forget that as long as I live. And five airplanes, it was not. None of the hoaxers were willing to recreate the flight formations during the daylight hours, mainly because some of the flights violated FAA regulations, which I always thought that was a really curious point that they brought up that I wish yeah. they had gone in depth about. Also, if they're talking about... Th so they mentioned something about ultralights. And I'm like, ultralights, like, that'd be really difficult to make that type of complicated and sophisticated maneuver with an ultralight plane, especially at night. So it must be some really good pilots then if they're ultralight planes. I'm thinking the and FAA regulations that they violated were perhaps that the planes were flying too close to the ground. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. A home video showing a light formation above the Brewster New above Brewster New York was taken on June 10th, 1984, by Bob Pazuli. Uh, Philip Imbroglio was convinced the footage showed an actual UFO. These are his words. It has been looked at by a number of photographic experts who indicate that the movement of the object on the video seems to be one rigid object, not individual objects. Plus, there were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses who saw the UFO and said it was something strange. But the night that the airplanes were seen, there were also dozens of witnesses who said, in fact, that they did see airplanes. So what is the truth about the fantastic light formations in the sky above the Hudson River Valley? Were they aerial stunts performed by sophisticated pranksters? Or did the flying objects come from somewhere beyond the stars? Now, one thing that always bugs me about these things, these UFO stories, is like, uh, with, and this, this goes for the crop circles and everything, who are these, or, or Bigfoot or anything like that, who are these fucking attention-seeking douchebags that take something that were, that me and many other people and actual UFO researchers, something that is totally credible and like phenomenal and ruin it by going, Hey guys, look at us. Look, see, we're doing it too. Ha ha. But we're, we're just pranksters like fooled you like in, in Sully and tarnish the whole investigation and credibility of any of this stuff. It pisses me off because you can't tell me every single UFO is a hoax. You can't tell me every single crop circle is a hoax. We just, we've delved into the crop circle thing and there's no fucking way that you could, in that period of time, make these elaborate crop circles. But then there's other ones that were caught on tape being hoaxes. Yeah. So who are these people that like something crazy awesome is going on that's like out of this world and then they got to go and fuck it up with their stupid, you know... Re recreations or hoaxes same with the bigfoot stuff the people dressing up in the bigfoot suit i mean obviously that is more on the financial end because the uh famous tape that you were talking about of uh bigfoot walking around that everyone's seen at this point that one um was uh i wasn't didn't you say that one was said to be a that hoax was, that, 
that was said to be a hoax. I, I need to need to do more research again on that. But the last time I remember seeing something was that Scott Patterson himself or somebody he knew. I don't know exactly which one it is for sure. But before he died or something, like he like spilled the beans and like said, you know, it, it, uh, it was. It, wasn't real that's funny because i was watching in search of with with leonard nimoy and they actually had one on bigfoot and um they had some guy in there and and you know he was saying oh yeah i, I talked to robert patterson and and you know there's no way that, yeah, that robert patterson not yeah i got it wrong yeah <laughs> anyway uh he, you know he's like yeah you know i was talking to him and, and you know there's no way that that video is faked after talking to him and you know getting his blah blah, blah. and it was just kind of funny because well it's it's like the Loch Ness monster the most famous picture of the Loch Ness Monster. That is now a proven hoax. It was a toy submarine that had some thing on top of it that looked like a, you know, plesiosaur, and they just dropped it in the water, and then what they did is they did a shot. They did, well, one wide shot of it, and then they zoomed in really close on the thing and then took the photo. Because how you know it's fake is there's a photo that eventually did surface where you can literally just see this tiny little thing in the middle of the lake. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's like clearly this stuff really does happen, yet these douche nozzles have to go out and just... Or well, like, you know, people like The Guardian, you know, who's yeah. the guy. He's like, oh, I love UFOs. I'm going to, like, make things worse by, you know taking this tape that could be of an actual ufo sighting and then i'm going to throw in obviously fake aliens in there much to the chagrin of bob exler <laughs> exactly. um who looks like a young elton john anyway um so yeah i mean you know this is a great i think the thing i like most about this particular ufo segment hundreds of witnesses hundreds of witnesses it was kind it kind of created like a mass almost hysteria uh, the yeah. stopping, it, you know, it's just traffic coming to a halt just to go. The phone calls to that one, that one. Can you imagine being that poor guy? Yeah, the switchboard lighting up for the, you know, the guy having to you feel know the calls. All those calls, like, yeah, yeah, uh huh, UFO. And having to yeah. lie to those fine people and tell them everything's fine, we have everything under control. Like in the back of your head, though, you're like, holy shit, we're all fucked. <laughs> We're gonna fucking die! <laughs> <laughs> it was a firefight. Um. So yeah, I mean that that's why I really like this one. The uh, the graphics I remember it from a kid. This was when I saw as a kid that I was delighted that was on it the was uh, pretty effect. Yeah, it was on the box set, the Ultimate Collection. Thankfully, but uh, yeah, great great effects. It really conveys. I think they did a good job uh, lighting it. I think that's one of the main things. Yeah, is they it was a dark setting. They they kind of they made sure it was a darker sort of lighting for for the effect, which made it a lot more effective. Because I've seen ones where it's like a dusk or you know and yeah it just lighting is literally every is literally CG. everything when it comes to CG. I mean that's even for modern movies like yes, and it's really hard to do. And that's why I don't understand why CGI has completely replaced practical effects because some things you just you can't fake lighting i can tell i'm sorry it's not it does not match with the lighting that you that is on the set right <laughs> it doesn't and it's almost impossible to actually get the lighting correctly i mean it I, i've seen instances where people have done it but mostly i mean gravity believe it or not most of that film was shot most of the backgrounds and stuff is cg it wasn't even really shot on a set for the most part this is really impressive about that film 
Hmm. So they did a good job lighting there, but it's kind of getting more of a rare occurrence to me. It just seems you can kind of tell it's it's behind a green screen nowadays. I remember when I first uh, when I first started seeing CG because CG, you know, though it was around in the nineties, yeah, like eighty nine, you know, the Abyss and the first scene and and start, you know, the scene of Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, you know, where the Genesis planet. You know, they're they're showing this video that shows what will happen if Genesis gets, you know, activated on a planet. God. That was one of the earliest examples of CGI. Of course, you have Tron, uh, Last Starfighter, Last Starfighter, and Tron. They actually built like custom-made computers to actually be able to do the effects for those films. Oh, that's cool. Never yeah. seen that movie. Yeah, it's another one I haven't seen. Sherlock Holmes is another advancement in CGI. Even Willow had an advancement with the whole morphing techniques because before Willow, there really wasn't the ability to do things like that. And of all things, Howard the Duck actually started something. ILM created technology to be able to digitally remove wires. Really? For Howard the Duck. Power of the Duck was the first film to incorporate that new technology. Wow. I had, now I, I have the ability to do that on Final Cut Pro, so any Joe fuckface like myself can now do that. That's crazy. Yeah, back then, that was a big deal. I bet. So, um... I think the biggest example that people remember from if they're around, you know, our ages from their childhood for CG was Jurassic Park. Like, that was the big... <laughs> Introduction. One thousand or the T one thousand in uh, in Terminator Two Judgment Day, that too. Yeah, that was a little before my time. I was pretty young when that one came out. But Jurassic Park, I was right at that prime age to be like, wow, look at those dinosaurs. Yeah, and, and a lot the, of them were practical though. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that's forgotten about is that a lot of that was practical. So. I think the the movie that pissed me off the most was CG when I really started to notice it go overboard was the first Spider-Man movies in 2001. Yeah, those don't hold up too well watching those again. Not only just because of the CG effects, but because of the story and and the way it's handled and yeah. I just remember Spider-Man jumping off a building and he'd go from looking like a real person to this like gelatinous, like brighter than everything else glob that would like flow through the air. And it's like, that looks so fucking bad. Like even as even as a 13 year old, I was watching that going, this looks like awful. Well, maybe I was like 14 or 15. I don't think I was. Yeah. But yeah. So anyway, um, effects in this uh, show look pretty good, though, for this segment. It's a low budget people need to i don't think unsolved mysteries had like millions mm. of dollars i don't know if i call it low budget at that point in the show yeah, not, not, not super low but i'm just saying in comparison to a, a big budget tv movie like the stand or you know stevie king's it or you know or a movie wait it, was, it was a tv movie yeah really yeah i did not so that did not have a theatrical release no. What? It was a TV miniseries. The original It, with uh, played by uh. Curry, yeah, the clown, killer clown, yeah. Yeah. Are TV you... movie. Really? I was Salem's Lot. I did not know that. I thought that that was a movie that was in theaters. Holy shit! Well, that's why the movie is like over almost. What is it like? It's split into two parts each. Each part is like over two hours or something, or feature length. Wow. Okay. 
All right, so uh, this part of the show, we would uh, like to spotlight certain listeners who are also loyal patrons to our Patreon account and uh, just give you a little information about some of the people listening to our show. Kind of bizarre things that you may not have known about these people and they've told me in confidence, but I'm sorry, folks, I'm going to spill the beans because, you know, that's just what I do. So um, not many people know this, but Corin Wilma from Australia has every single VHS copy of the movie Speed with Sandra Bullock. Um, Well, just about. She's only missing a few. The lengths that she must have went through to get all those VHS tapes from all over the world. And why? Like, why would she want all those copies of the same movie? Speed's a really good movie. So that, I mean, I I don't necessarily blame her. And there's another guy... In, in the in the states in Amer- in the United States, who's trying to collect like every VHS tape of Speed? So well, they're going to be in battle with each other because she insists, and it's like Corin, do you actually watch each individual tape and try to find the small differences? Like, oh, there's an artifact here on frame seventeen of you know whatever. <laughs> she apparently rents out a bus and drives around Australia displaying her various VHS tape collection and making a handsome living doing it. What a bizarre country Australia is. Good thing she wasn't trying to get every Laserdisc copy of Speed. That would have been costly, Uh, uh, am I right? uh, uh, Yeah, totally. Totally costly. So so now... It really would be, because actually I have Speed on Laserdisc. Oh, do you? (laughs) Wow, go figure. So we also have... um, We want to tell you guys a little bit about our listener, um, Morgan Gebhardt, the same one who suggested the Blair Adams case. Now, she's from Canada, our neighbor to the north. We have a lot of Canadian listeners. Uh, Well, wait till you hear this story. So Morgan and apparently her friends were skiing, I guess it was some Friday a while back or whatever, back like last, last winter. Morgan insisted that her and her friends go up on the ski lift just one more time. You know, they were going to close, but she wanted to go up one more time. She even paid off the dude who ran the ski lift to let them do it. So while they were going up on the ski lift, the guy forgot that they were up there and he walked away from the machine to, like, take a piss or something. Well, by that point, it was too late because the manager or whatever was like, hey, you know, let's get out of here. We're shutting down. And the guy just completely forgot. They shut down the power to the park. Morgan and her two friends, Barry and Alex, were stuck in the ski lift on the ski chair for the whole weekend morgan and her friends spent three days on the ski chair suspended hundreds of feet in midair and eventually barry and alex fell to their deaths but morgan somehow was able to survive the fall wolves had already eaten the remains of her friends so they had certainly had their fill when it was time for morgan to crawl to safety which she eventually did and she's alive and well today listening to the podcast a crazy story right if you'd like a crazy if you'd like a crazy story of your own thrown into the podcast consider supporting us on patreon what do you think about that mike that was a very uh, crazy uh, some weird wild and crazy stuff Uh, (laughs) i like the good reference there like that but um it also reminds me of the plot for this movie called frozen um um okay we're not gonna talk about that okay (laughs) Because this really happened. So, yeah. There is no movie called Frozen. Don't look it up. 
That is not the plot. <laughs> the only Frozen movie that exists is the Disney one, so just... So the let it go. Let, let it go. go. Something, something anymore. So, um, hear the song anymore. Yeah, right. God, <laughs> all the little kids I've heard who don't understand. It's not their fault. I, I, remember, I remember that last year. That was really big last year in the Halloween. And the and the little girls would have these Elsa costumes. And they'd play the damn song. Like, there's a button they could press. Oh, no. And they would play the song. So funny from those like Pixar and Disney movies. Like if these if these people were real human beings, they they their head would literally be like sixty percent eyeballs, and like five percent mouth and like two percent nose. That would that wouldn't be, you know, attractive. Yeah, but, but for some reason it totally gives me a boner when it's digital. <laughs> I don't know why. So this show's come to a screeching halt. It's become pretty obvious about that. Um. So, I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, again, consider supporting us on Patreon if you find this content valuable to you and would like some more. Uh, If you'd like to get a story, or if you would like me to share your story, um, that's totally true. Uh, Totally all those things happened. Um, Consider doing that. Like us on Facebook. Um, And I'm an idiot because I was saying that I don't have a real YouTube link, but I do, Mike. And you know what? It's not Dancing with Ghosts 2. It's just youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. And I was telling the people the wrong thing. Yeah, I'm an (laughs) idiot. I am an idiot. The whole time I was like, yeah, you need a certain amount of subscribers and I don't have it. It's like, no, you're just stupid and don't deserve subscribers because you can't even figure out your damn YouTube link correctly. So, yeah, stand here a barren and broken man in front of all you people. But Mike... Mike, on the other hand, who has his shit together, is on YouTube, um, youtube.com slash OCP Communications. And it's got some of our segments on there from uh, when we would get on camera and do these on camera, but those didn't get any hits, so we stopped doing those. Yeah, that's pretty much why. It was kind of crazy. Like, the moment I, I posted episode three it was just a podcast form that, like, got a... It already has over 2,000 views, so people, thank you. <laughs> people want the long form, no video on YouTube. Go fucking figure. Every <laughs> every idea I've had is just not panned out, but Mike's ideas that don't make sense to me always end up like being the uh, the winners, it seems like. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because it's a podcast. Maybe some people are just like, oh, I can just put it on and play on my phone or something while I'm, you know... I was just thinking, like, you know, on YouTube, it's visual. We're in front of the camera. These are just tiny little yeah. chunks. I mean, also, you know, we could have still done it, too, but it was really, really a pain. For me, yeah, it was. <laughs> I had to get all that footage and edit it together, and the audio didn't sync up right a lot of times for whatever reason. It was a fucking like hours pain. Hours of editing. So, yeah. yeah. It was a pain, so it was like, eh, not worth it. But we did do a, a video... Uh, in that old school style fashion for our Patreon. So even absolutely, if, that was totally worth it. So yeah. if you want to see what that's like, yeah, go to the Patreon. Or, yeah. or go to my channel, and watch the other videos. Yeah, and it's free. I mean, that you don't get, you don't got to pay to watch that video. You just go on Patreon and look at the video. You know, where you can see our mugs on there in action. <laughs>